Hey everyone, this is Arnold Bjorn with Warm Welcome, where every Wednesday we meet the makers behind the most beloved restaurants to share their stories, struggles, and success. Today, I'm excited to announce that we're featuring Steve Wong, a partner and co-owner of Oxalis, a neo bistro restaurant that received a Michelin star in the 2020 guide for its affordable and approachable cuisine. Uh, there aren't many restaurants in New York City that offer a six-course tasting menu for seventy dollars. Steve grew up in the Bay Area. His parents were immigrants that had blue-collar jobs working for the post office. His dad played an important role in shaping his interests and equipping Steve with lessons in finance by often posting Forbes articles for light reading on the kitchen fridge at home. Steve found himself on a whirlwind journey in Argentina to follow his initial passion of empowering communities and at the forefront of setting up worker cooperatives. In this episode, you'll be joining me in diving deeper into the economics of a pop-up restaurant, a method that Jay from No One last week had also deployed to gain traction for his opening, as well as how Oxalis has pivoted and is beginning to adapt to the new landscape of restaurants as we know it. To begin, we take you to the early dawn of days in Steve's childhood as he managed to crawl out of his bed to work, his opening shift at a neighborhood coffee shop. You know, I worked in coffee shops my whole life. I, I remember I used to open up the coffee shop process route for my house before high school. So I would wake up at like 5.30 and crawl over there for two hours. This owner must have got the biggest break of his life just getting some, some young, you know, high schooler to open. I, I worked in coffee shops all through college. I think hospitality always had a thread through everything. But I, I also started college actually pre-med. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, and just a year into it, I kind of, just reassessed and, and kind of thought, you know, kind of realized that, you know, it didn't really, I, I really loved science, but I, I don't think I felt very passionate about it afterwards. Um, I switched into studying economics. I, my, my father, as somebody that immigrated and I think made, found a lot of financial success investing in the stock market, investing in real estate. Both my parents, you know, when I was younger, really blue collar jobs. They both worked at the post office plant. Oh, a lot of, you know, my childhood, I guess, comforts to the, the APWU, the union there. It's like a really, really strong union, really good benefits. And But my dad, even working that job, kind of invested in stocks, invested in business, was always kind of talking my ear off about finances. My dad is extremely thrifty. He used to have us fill these huge jugs of water out of the refrigerator. It would just take a really long time. He'd be like, fill these three up. But he'd always put all these different Forbes articles and things up as a kid. So I think I always kind of did a lot of light reading there. So it made a lot of sense to study economics. And then I double majored also in community studies. That made a lot of sense. So community studies is a very UC Santa Cruz. I went to school in Santa Cruz in the Bay Area. Very, you know, progressive education. And community studies there is kind of sociology, but really based in social change and what kind of problems exist and how to create real fundamental changes to our economy or society or whatnot. So my focus in community studies was economic justice, actually. And kind of the reason I got into that, you know, I wanted to, you know, in college, you know, the way I saw it, you know, my, my parents immigrated, you know, my father worked, you know, they both worked kind of, it wasn't a graveyard shift. It was almost a swing shift. They got sure. up to work at 3am, 4am. So they could get off at 2 p.m. and pick us up from school. You know, I saw them working so hard their whole lives. You know, they made a lot of sacrifices for our family. They left their family, you know. 
I, I felt more economically secure, I think, than they did. And, you know, the idea of kind of going into a profession to accumulate more wealth or to just be more economically secure didn't necessarily make sense. It felt like that sacrifice that they made, it just didn't translate for me. So I wanted to figure out a way how to help people and business. For me, it was something that was really interesting. And then also, you know, the economic crisis was happening as I was in college in 2008 and seeing, you know, the role that banks played in the devastation that was happening to a lot of families, it really made a lot of sense to kind of focus more of my my interest and time on that. With his interest and calling in community studies, Steve found himself abroad in Argentina and getting involved in a nonprofit called The Working World that invests in the workers to promote a democratic economy. Essentially, it invests and lends capital to empower ordinary people to build extraordinary businesses. It's a path that Steve originally pursued out of his pure passion. Uh, it was after 2003, they had an economic collapse um, and workers there, without work, they were illegally basically reoccupying these businesses and reopening them as democratically owned, democratically managed cooperatives. Mm-hmm. So worker employee owned enterprises. Seeing the 2008 recession, the Great Recession kind of beginning, it really seemed like a real simple solution in terms of, well, businesses are closing, you know, how do we reopen the economy in a more equitable way? So I went down there, I worked for a year with one of the most famous recovery factories, I would say, in Argentina called Hotel Bowen. It's a 20-story hotel in downtown Buenos Aires, reopened by the workers, fully democratically managed. Yeah, you know, I mean, without, you know, certainly a business that had a lot of challenges to face, and I think having access to capital was a big big issue there. These weren't legal companies, you know, so banks wouldn't lend to them. And there was one organization that was lending to the companies, and it was this organization called The Working World. In Argentina, it's actually called La Base, the base. And this organization had given a loan to the hotel, to Hotel Bound, to fix their AC system. And, you know, they were lending to support this form of democratic ownership. You know, the the director, Brennan Martin, he saw that these democratically owned companies were starting they had no access to capital so i met brendan in argentina when i was working with hotel bowen was really interested in the working world their lending model Um, we can dive a lot more into that but basically you know the working world provides both capital and technical assistance to worker-owned companies so that you know business workshops training a lot of operational consulting things like that we kind of plan investments and then rolled them out. So met them in Argentina. They had lent to Hotel Bowen. After Argentina, I moved back to, I finished school in the U.S. and I moved back to Argentina to work for a little bit longer. It was kind of my first foray out of coffee into the restaurant industry. I worked for a really nice restaurant called Mercado Central that is now closed. That was kind of my first introduction into waiting tables, um, actually. And then eventually I moved to New York uh, at the same time that the working world was opening an office. And I kind of got in at the ground floor there. You know, I moved to New York. Um, you know, I, I worked to the quality branded group um, that owns Quality Meats and then like that. Um, but I was always kind of working for the working world. At that time, there was very, very little financing. I don't think many people in the U.S. even knew what a worker cooperative was. That's changed a lot. Now, for example, we get financing from the city government. You know, the city council provides financing. There's programs. You know, I filled out PPP applications with the SBA. And one of the questions like, are you an LLC? Are you a worker cooperative? Being there after, you know, helping to start 
the working world in the U.S. God, when was that? Probably 10 years ago now. It's just like amazing to see. Steve's involvement at the working world would later lead him to NYC and onto one of the highest profile projects at the organization with the new Arrow Windows facility in Chicago. So what was the new Arrow Windows and what did Steve possibly learn from a window company? New Arrow Windows was probably one of the biggest profile investments that the working world made became a really well-known company because in 2008, during the recession, actually, the company that owned Newware Windows, the windows called Republic Windows and Doors, they, they were closing their factory saying that they were out of money, but the mm-hmm. workers caught them moving their equipment to Ohio to open another factory. So the business owner was saying, look, we're out of money. Everyone's got to go. There's no work here. But really, they were just closing down and reopening um, elsewhere, the workers occupied that factory, and I think I, I think Obama visited the factory. Now they were bought by a tech company, but then a few years later, that company closed, and the workers came to us. They said, "Hey, look, we heard that you can help us become owners of this Windows factory. Um, it's a you know it's a manufacturer energy efficient vinyl windows, mostly uh, replacement windows." And I flew to Chicago to help them open the company. So I was flying back and forth from New York to Chicago for about a year. Um, ever since finding the place, you know, I worked with the workers to set up the, the lines. Um, you know, they had all this knowledge from working for 20 years, you know, as workers for other people, um, that they just had enough information to set up a factory by themselves. And this is a multi-million dollar Windows factory. And, you know, it was a really stressful time in my life, I think. Just out of college, you know, I had never opened a company myself. And there was a lot of pressure that the workers were facing in terms of trying to make enough money to feed their families. There was about 20 20 workers there at the time. Um, So there was a lot of pressure to kind of get things off the ground and and get things going. For for me, I knew nothing about Windows. You know, I learned, I I talked to suppliers, I figured out, I learned every part that went into it and did a lot of sales. So from the start of the working world, I probably consulted with dozens and dozens of companies by now. But it really gave me, you know, a lot of experience from the sales side to the operational side, you know, to the accounting, kind of gave me a really thorough look at everything. So I definitely owe it a lot to that to that experience in terms of, I think understanding, you know, obviously I don't work in the windows industry anymore, but I think understanding what it takes to open a company and and who can successfully do that. I mean, they're still open today and doing really well. And, you know, I think I took a lot from the experience. After a successful project with the working world, Steve wanted a change of scenery. His transition from helping create worker cooperatives to opening a restaurant, though, was always a curious case for me. How does that happen? Steve explains it in the next segment, the meeting behind Noxalis, how he met his current business partners, Chef Nico and beverage director Piper, the economics of a pop-up restaurant business, and the early stories of the restaurant before its permanent home in Prospect Heights. The name Oxalis, you know, it's the Latin word for wood sorrel. It's an edible herb. For one, it's, you know, really common in the Bay Area where, where Nico, you know, Chef Nico and myself are from. But, it, you know, it grows all over the place. You know, if you take a block around Brooklyn right now, you'll probably see it growing. It's a really common plant, you know, and for us, it really represents both humility and simplicity. It's an herb that, you know, might go unnoticed, but it's really great. 
And it's just this idea that, you know, these really simple things can, you know, these really simple things in life can be really great. For us, it's always been about honing in on that simplicity and helping using that as a reference point for us, you know, our food, our space, you know, we, it's always understated for us. We put a ton of thought into everything we do. Um, and it always seems very simple, but I think when guests dine and eat at Oxalis, they start to see that there's kind of many, many more layers in there than, than you know, you would normally expect. So there's two partners at Oxalis. It's a really bootstrapped project, to be honest. Uh, Nico, the chef partner, I've known him from the Bay Area, actually. We went to high school together. I knew him, and I remember when he decided to go to culinary school, it was really surprising for me. Again, this was 20th, graduated high school 2006. So it was a long time ago, and I think the restaurant industry then, I don't think, I think it was becoming more popular, but it certainly wasn't what it was now. And something about that, and I think having worked in hospitality through high school, it was really interesting to see him take that career. And kind of as a result of him choosing to go into the industry, I really hear about kind of what he he was learning about and restaurants that were opening and, you know, really gave me a different perspective. So I've known Nico for a really long time. The other partner, Piper, the beverage director that we brought on, he got on with us probably a year into the pop-up. So he's been with us for most of the time as well. Um, he came from the Booker and Dax kind of lineage, um, working with Dave Arnold on special R&D projects and things like that. Um, and, you know, we, we've always really loved Piper, his, the way that he thinks about food and beverage is, you know, it's really creative and, and it's something that's always fit really well with us. So we kind of brought him in. Basically, you know, the, the story is that after opening the Windows Factory, it was a really, really challenging kind of project for me and, and somebody that was still growing professionally. And it just kind of got to a point that I really needed a change in pace. You know, I, I wasn't sure what it is, but I kind of felt that I had kind of exhausted myself in terms of, you know, where to go with the working world. Um, and Nico at the time was finishing his first year at Mirazur in France. And I, you know, as part of my kind of like, oh, well, I don't know what I'd do. I took a trip abroad to Europe. I took a month with my girlfriend at the time traveling around and, we met up for Christmas uh, in Paris and, you know, had some drinks and a little too much wine. And we both kind of were just at a point where we wanted to do something different. And, uh, you know, from what we've heard, you know, opening a restaurant was really, really difficult. But better start when you're younger, when you have the energy. So we said, you know what, let's give it a shot. Let's, you know, we didn't know how to do it. You know, I, I had invested in a lot of businesses, worked with startups, but again, it's kind of its own thing. And there's not much about how to open a restaurant out there in the world. So we just started with these pop-up dinners to see if kind of the ideas that we had would resonate. We were really fortunate. We sold that. I think it was at the end of the day, 50 plus pop-up dinners. I mean, we anywhere from 30 to 60 tickets um, every dinner. So I think we managed to get a lot of traction. Um, and I think a large part of that was getting a little. So I remember we did our, we did a first friends and family pop-up. And then we did our first kind of big weekend at a restaurant called Fitzcarraldo Bushwick. And we wrote some journalists and we got a woman named Sarah Zorn uh, to kind of come in and have dinner. And she did a little piece on our pop-up. And from there, I think we were able to kind of continue to kind of 
work with media, work our own mailing list and our own social media to kind of build that following. And just with time, we were able to build a, a really consistent following. We had some guests that really kind of came along with us and grew up with us. And I think that was really rewarding for us. And that was really helpful for us to kind of have some consistency too. Our idea was that, you know, there's a big shift in preferences. I think people were, you know, not looking for the same kind of extravagant white tablecloth experiences. You know, you hear from business owners too that there's, you know, rising costs, labor's going up, rent's going up. And we saw that happening. Um, and we saw this kind of neo bistro model, this shift in emphasis a little bit more towards the environment, the product, and away from kind of these more expensive things as a way that people were looking for more approachable, accessible environments. And then, you know, on the finance side, from my perspective, it seemed to make a lot more sense. You know, the margins could be a little bit larger. And, you know, we kind of saw this opportunity. We weren't really sure. And I think we were still formulating that. In a lot of ways, we're still formulating um, you know, our, our ideas about, you know, who we are and where things are going. And, you know, we can talk more about where things are going now. Uh, but we wanted to kind of see how how to make that work and how to make that fit. So for the first year, it was literally just figuring out the structure and the format of the dinner. We worked a lot about the pacing. We worked a lot with the style of service, you know, how to make something feel, you know, still high end, but a little bit more relaxed. You know, the whole idea for was for us was always to create, you know, a, a restaurant experience that, you know, we would feel comfortable in too. So it took a year of just kind of like adjusting, coursing, how many courses, what that format looked like. And then the whole second year of the pop-up, we did it for about two years and all, was raising the money um, and then finding a space. And those two things were wildly challenging as well. The economics of a pop-up are not very great. You're fighting to find product you know, you're buying a lot of product at retail prices. Finding places to do the dinners and rent is very expensive as well. You know, you're kind of competing as a pop-up unless you, you know, until you build a name for yourself or if you have a good network of, you know, a restaurant that might let you use the space. You know, you're competing with other people that are renting restaurants, which are like weddings. And like, I think restaurant operators, they understand that you're not, you know, you're not a wedding and that you need to have a more profitable margin to be able to do it. You're still paying, you know, a thousand a night in rent, you know, and you're talking about paying that for a space that costs 10,000 for the month. It's like more than the day rate. So the margins are not really great. We definitely had to make sure that they were profitable for us, um, but certainly they weren't enough for us to pay our own salaries or anything like that. We were doing, you know, two to four a month. Um, so, you know, I was working at the working world at the time. Piper was doing consulting work and, and Nico was doing, you know, other gigs as well. So we all kind of had to cobble it together and it was definitely, there were times that we, we definitely were, were exhausted by it. But at some point, if there's anything I've learned, it's just, you know, you just got to keep going. A big part of the success and identity of Oxalis is honestly, in my opinion, it's awareness as a restaurant and as a brand of its regulars and its surroundings. Steve and his team realizes the needs and wants of its location in the particular demographic of Brooklyn and has successfully established itself as a neighborhood restaurant. So next we talk about what he loves about the neighborhood in Prospect Heights and also jump into the design and the layout of the restaurant as I thought the particular layout of it was very interesting. We always really just love the spirit of the neighborhood there. You know, there's a lot of diversity there. It's there's very diverse neighborhood. It's right next to the park. I think there's, you know, there's beautiful brownstones. The transportation is right next to the Barclays Center. 
So I think a lot of, you know, where it is and the people that live in that community resonated a lot with us. In terms of the design, it is really interesting. You walk right into the kitchen. Sometimes people don't know if it's coming through the right door. You know, in a way, when we first found the space, it was set up like that. It, it was originally, however, there was a bar there. So it was, and they would seat people up front. First of all, we needed a little bit more restaurant, uh, more kitchen space for sure. what we wanted to put out we really wanted people to kind of feel the energy of the space around them. Again, we talk about where fine dining is and this kind of this like more quiet, austere environments. I think that that, that's not something that we really wanted to, you know, that's not a environment we always felt comfortable in. So we wanted to create a space and design a restaurant that could really embrace that moving energy. So we actually designed it. So not only do you walk into the kitchen, but the server stations, uh, before you get into the restaurant, they're all facing towards the door. We're kind of inside the inner workings of the restaurant. The kitchen guys are, are yelling we at you while, you know, while, while you're walking through. And I think that part of it, you know, we really wanted to make sure that it felt alive and that you can kind of like feel the heartbeat of the place before you got to your table. And that's kind of the thought process behind it. The bar in the back, the usage seat, uh, they had just outdoor seating. It was always enclosed, so the, there's a little kind of atrium there. What we did was we put up walls on it, and we made it a year-round uh, enclosure. I mean, over time, we've installed more heating, we've installed more AC, and we're continuing to put money into it. The set menu that we have, again, it's six courses. It's $70 right now. It, was, it, it always is very accessible. I think anyone that eats out a lot in New York knows you can do $100 a person for food and a pairing. You know, it is a very big deal. Uh, it's a great value. But at the same time, you know, we understand that people have different needs, you know, especially when we found the space, you know, you're thinking about what that community is in Crown Heights, Prospect Heights. And again, a lot of young families, a lot of young professionals, you know, they're coming home late, they want a quick bite or they have kids at home and they need to get home quickly. So we wanted to make sure that there was still an area in the restaurant that people could come in, have a bite, be in and out in 30 minutes to an hour. So in, in a lot of ways, that kind of garden room, bar area where we serve our a la carte is really just kind of response to the community that we're in. Steve is actually the first guest I'm interviewing remotely since the lockdown happened. I wanted to talk about the pandemic, the restaurant leading up to mid-March to how it's pivoted to what's to come. Before COVID-19, Oxalis was well on its way to become much more than just a neighborhood restaurant. In fact, perhaps a destination restaurant, as some of us say in the industry. As we've learned through some other restaurateurs we've had on the podcast, the power and influence of the Michelin Guide is still very much recognizable, but I really wanted to delve into what he's done and how he's reacted to the coronavirus. We weren't exactly sure what to do. You know, I think that's the whole question itself, you know, Grubhub and Seamless and Caviar and how much revenue they're taking from restaurants. You know, not only that, but it didn't necessarily feel right or safe for us right away, you know, to bring staff back. We were still learning day by day what was going on and what felt okay. So it took us about three to four weeks. You know, I think we really, what really kind of got to us is, you know, we started to think about the long term for restaurants and where things are going. You know, at first we thought, things would kind of return to normalcy somewhat quickly. Here we are two months in and, and, you know, it doesn't feel like that. I think restaurants are getting their PPP financing. They're saying, how am I going to spend my money in eight weeks? Like eight weeks from now is mid-July. It doesn't seem like 
it's going to return to normalcy anytime soon. So that's kind of the starting point of the conversation that really got us thinking, well, what are we going to do? Do we want to do delivery? You know, what, what is it? We have to reopen Oxalis or if, you know, how is that going to work as a business? And certainly in, to, to us, it, it doesn't work. So, you know, the question is, you know, how do you create a business model that can supplement your restaurant, not just through the closure, but into, you know, December 31st at the end of the year? Look, it's going to be a long time, you know, <laughs> before things get back to normal. And, you know, restaurants really need to find a way how to adjust that. Fortunately for us, I think that we, you know, we've we've built a team and I think all the credit to, to our team at Oxalis for, you know, having a really creative approach um, and a lot of commitment and taking a lot of ownership over what we're doing in Oxalis. That's been a big part for us. You know, obviously our experience is a pop-up. You know, we, again, this whole operation has been bootstrapped from the get-go what kind of things have to come in place? And I think we had a lot of the working pieces, again, with our staff, you know, they've been, you know, incredible in helping us kind of reopen. Um, but, you know, just also, you know, the way that I work with Chef Nico and the way Chef Nico works with Piper, our beverage director, to be able to kind of relaunch something quickly, that, that's been a huge part of it. And, you know, we decided to start what we call Pantry Box kitchenly called uh, Boxalis, you know, as a way, you know, we are the, you know, it's the Oxalis team doing boxes. We wanted to figure out a way to kind of translate what we were doing at the restaurant, which is creating some access to a really high quality product, creating an experience that felt really inviting and fun and kind of translating that to home. So that was a really simple thing for us. You know, we, we provide seasonal products, you know, our menu is never announced and we change it week to week. And, you know, that's something that people know us for and trust us for. And then, you know, creating that experience um, in the home through these date nights and Sunday brunch kits. It's such a difficult time, I think, for so many people. I mean, the isolation that we're all going through. I mean, people in the industry, you know, our lives are turned upside down. We don't get to do the things we love every day. I mean, people can't see their families. So I think for us, finding a way to bring some of that joy and excitement back into people's lives was really important for us in terms of what we did. It's been so, so amazing kind of seeing the feedback of people opening their boxes and having their date nights, like that joy and excitement for us, like not just for, you know, for everybody on our team, it's just been like, it's been so heartwarming to be able to kind of provide that. Over the next few weeks, uh, I think consumers will see all sorts of restaurants reopening to you know start to tackle this question of what's the new model that people are looking at and i think the more people can order in and do takeout and tip um, i think that is going to be really important for these restaurants to see some success and kind of continue to invest in that process of figuring out how how to reopen so i just encourage everybody to order from their local restaurants i mean again there, there's going to be more restaurants opening up their doors for delivery and takeout and things like that and i just highly recommend everyone support that steve thank you for your insights and for your time and and being the first guest on the podcast via zoom excels was truly a restaurant i thoroughly enjoyed and quite possibly my best restaurant experience in all of 2019. The experience was just as how Steve 
as describe it to us. It's open, approachable, accessible. I felt very much welcomed uh, at home and at ease under Steve, Nico, and Piper's care. In regards to Steve's ending comment about ordering more from your local restaurant, I think it's truly important during this time, but also what's more important, as I like to share it, is to first contact the restaurant. Uh, as of this episode's released on May 27, 2020, there are a lot of independent restaurants that have reopened for takeout and delivery. If you're able, please do opt for uh, takeout or pickup as opposed to delivery. And I understand that not everyone has the luxury and or is able to do so. Um, and if you do decide delivery, please get in touch with the restaurant directly. Uh, most of them have their phone numbers visible as well so you can get in touch with them restaurants are more approachable than they've ever been and i can tell you from experience that they will appreciate your business and your effort to go out of your way to see how you can best support the restaurant and this industry as a whole as always this has been arnold with warm welcome thank you for tuning in and don't forget to rate and review our podcast and send it forward to someone you think would be interested in our stories of asian americans immigrants and restaurant entrepreneurship. See you next Wednesday.